what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There was really nothing. There, there was literally no legitimate evidence in this case to support a conviction. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We recently wrapped up the story of Damien Skinner. Convicted of a gangland shooting in 1997, he spent the last 26 years incarcerated for the crime, a crime he says he didn't commit. As always, when we finish up with these cases, I like to get a professional's opinion. As someone who's not only not American, but also not a lawyer, I felt from the very beginning that it was extremely important to have a voice of reason to weigh in on these cases. And it's been a while since we've spoken, but it's time to welcome back Australia's favourite attorney at law, Michael Leonard. Hey, Jack. How's it going? Hey, here he is. Sorry to keep awaiting, pal. I was in Chicago traffic. That's right, mate. No problem at all. I'm always just sitting here in this room anyway. So, uh, you know, it's (laughs) it's nice to see your friendly face. It's been a while. Good to see you, buddy. I'm glad. Mr. Leonard is a defense attorney from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, and a man with decades of trial experience and most certainly the voice of reason. I had a chance encounter that, you know, made me a little bit worried about your show in Australia. What was that? Well, we were out for uh, lunch with a couple of the kids on Sunday, which was the big Chicago marathon day. And so these, this couple came in and sat next to us and they clearly were runners and just had finished the marathon. So I decided to ask them about it. And sure enough, they were Australians. Yeah. so then I had to ask him the, the question, right, Jack? I have no doubt they've not heard of the show, Michael Leonard. <laughs> so I said, are you familiar with a guy named Jack Lawrence? He's from Australia. He's got this great podcast. And they both shook their head, Jack. So I'm really worried about the ratings, you know, 
in your country. What's what's going on? You know, you can't reach everyone all the time. We try. Exactly. What a great story. <laughs> would have been if they were like, yeah, we love the show. You know? Yeah, oh, that would have been amazing. Them, I did tell them to tune in and it was about true crime and that they would really like it. But one other observation, in my entire life, when I've met people from Australia, I've never once had someone who wasn't happy and kind and eager to talk to. What is in the water in your country? You know, the weather is always, I mean, look at the moment here, blue, beautiful blue sunshine. You know, we, we've got beautiful beaches. So there's not much to complain about. Yeah. Well, it's always good to, to run across Aussies because they're always really outgoing, like to engage in conversation. It's just fun. Um, so that was cool. Um, but I wish they would have known about the show. Well, they do now. Mr. Leonard, they do now. <laughs> exactly. I also thought about you because we had a trial about two weeks ago mm. uh, here in Illinois in state court, and it really made me think of you and your show and the ongoing debate about you know jury trials because it was sort of a classic example of a case that could have ended up on your show where our client was accusing a five-count indictment, so five different charges, all had sort of hellacious sentencing possibilities attached to them where if he would have been convicted, he probably would have gotten, you know, 12 or 24 years or something crazy based based upon the counts. It was a county outside Chicago, about 30, 40 miles. On the one hand, it has a diverse population that, uh, you know, matched our client. But on the other hand, when the jury pool came in for jury selection, uh, there was very few people that looked like him or had his background. So we were very concerned. We we're also concerned because we were a little bit unfamiliar with the jurisdiction and didn't think it would be particularly favorable to this type of case. And it was one of those cases where there is very little evidence and like no corroboration at all. And so we were hard pressed to believe that the case was even brought and it was, you know, based upon an accusation by someone who had a motive to testify falsely. And really the whole case was built upon that person's testimony, which had absolutely no corroboration. You know, despite the fact they put on about 12 witnesses, nobody could corroborate, really add anything to the story at all. Uh, so we had a lot of concerns. Uh, and sure enough, uh, to our surprise, but our belief, it was a not guilty on every single count which definitely made me feel like, wow, you know, the system works, they get it. Firstly, congratulations uh, on the result. Uh, and I, But I, I still truly believe it depends, you know, it's all dependent, again, on who you've got on your team, you know. Um, I, you still you still will never convince me that the jury system is the way to go. I, I mean, I actually, some, <laughs> someone asked me the other day, well, what would you prefer? And I said, well, I'd probably prefer, give me three judges who all understand the law. They're not going to fall asleep during, during the trial, hopefully not anyway. Uh, they understand things like reasonable doubt and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, you know, for me, it's a case of that's the way I would prefer to go if I was up for something. Yeah, so although, as, as we've discussed, those, those three judges would all be very biased, not necessarily in an intentional way, you know, based upon their own background and experiences, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a great debate. When it goes your way, oh, you feel fantastic. Of course. Like, what a great system. Absolutely. We got all these people who didn't know each other, who didn't know our client, and, and saw the facts exact as they should be. But, of course, when it doesn't go your way, then you howl at the moon and, you know, uh, are in dismay forever. So it, it's a tough one. My name is Amos Skinner. I was charged with murder in the first degree. 
and I was given 32 years of life, and I've been in prison 27 years. I know the system is, is broken. I know the system is corrupt cause, because I'm in here. I'm in here on false pretense. I spent 27 years of my life on a lie. They had no evidence on me. And I know the system is broken. And I've met a lot of guys with similar stories in here. And when I read the paperwork, that shows the corruption in, in, in the case. But when you have a jury trial, the jury always believe everything that the police say, like the police can't do no wrong. We'll start as we always do. Your thoughts um, just straight up on, on what you've heard? Yeah, sadly, a, a very depressing story because, you know, like some of your other cases, this one in particular, there was really nothing. There, there was literally no legitimate evidence in this case to support a conviction. And I think we have to start, you know, before even get to the trial. Again, a huge failure on the part of the prosecution team and law enforcement to bring the case, to continue to pursue the case when, you know, you question whether there's a really good faith basis that they can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, they're confronted with a situation where you have a defendant who has literally no criminal history or certainly no legitimate criminal history, not a gang member, has no connection to the victim, nobody to legitimately put him even in that area at the time, no connection whatsoever to his co-defendant, which makes the case make even less sense when there's no connection between these two gentlemen, the, co the defendants in the case. Uh, there's no connection to the car which is the one that allegedly was involved in the crime. So for those reasons, and, and certainly no forensic evidence, you have to question the prosecution team for even bringing the case and then making the intentional move to change venue, to move it to a more favorable place so that they could gain a conviction. So it's a depressing one, Jack. They didn't change the venue. to the city of Burbank. I've never been to Burbank in my life. And I remember walking in court, and I remember the bailiff, who was a white guy, told me, they don't like blacks out here. They like, you fighting the murder out here, I'm going to keep you in my prayer every day. They don't like your kind out here. And that was his exact words, his exact words to me. And I look at it now, since I'm older, since I know more, a little bit more certain aspects of the law, I should have said much more to my attorney. The fact that I was young, ain't never been in this situation. I, I trusted in him to do the right thing. First of all, he should have never allowed him to do a change of venue to way out there, because I never had a jury of my peers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. And, and again, look, as we've spoken about the, the situation regarding moving um, cases before somewhere else to different jurisdictions, and obviously the argument there is, you know, high profile, been in the news a lot, jury pool might be tainted, so we move it in, in that situation. This was a gangland shooting, which sadly in the area which Damien is from happens all the time. It, was, it wouldn't be a news thing. It may be just a quick bulletin, you know, someone shot and we move on with our lives. So it's not like this was a huge deal and was through the, through the news. They literally moved it out of Compton in to this other area where um, Damien says was, you know, it was an all-white jury. I mean, the whole point of the jury is this is a jury of your peers. Well, these people weren't his peers. These people are not his peers. They're not people who are like him. You know, and even Damien said, I don't want to bring race into it. But sadly, unfortunately, as much as we'd like to say, well, race isn't a, race isn't a factor, unfortunately, it, it can be. And especially when they start, you know, playing the gang angle, which he said they really heavily focused on, even suggesting he was a gang member. Let's talk about venue first, just so your listeners understand. Um, you know, typically a case is, is venued, meaning it, the, it goes to court, goes to trial in the area where the occurrence happened. That's usually a requirement, of course, right? Um, just to even bring the case. And so to change the venue from one county or one city to another, it typically takes the circumstances, like you said. Uh, unusual, highly unusual circumstances where because of the pre-trial publicity and the intention to the case, there's a reason to move it somewhere else to uh, a venue where people might not be familiar with the facts. But those types of situations are literally limited to some type of case where it's really impossible to get a fair shake from the jury pool that that you sit in. This case, as you said, sadly, it was it was a run of the mill shooting case. I mean, I don't want to discount the death of anybody. No, but, but it's, there was yeah. nothing. There was nothing about the case that would draw public attention to it. Most people probably never heard of the case. They didn't care anything about the case. They never would have. It would not have been on their radar. So it'd be curious to see what was the motion the state filed. What was the basis that they cited to say that 
this case should be somewhere else. And there's no question, Damien is is being very kind uh, in saying that he doesn't want to bring race into it. It's all about race. They moved it from a from a jurisdiction where there would have been a fair cross section of the community, uh, at least a certain a number of people who'd be in the jury pool who were African American to a jury pool where there's probably zero African-Americans or a, an incredibly low amount, no no fair cross-section in the community. And even, even more than that, a jurisdiction where, you know, a, a case of this type is probably never happens. So for all those reasons, you got to question why the judge ever let the prosecution move the case. And I hope to God that his defense attorney vigorously fought that issue and fought it on appeal. That was a game changer. I mean, if the case is tried in L.A. County, I assume that would have been the county versus the other uh, seemingly almost all white county. There probably would have been just on that basis a different result. Let's face it. It's almost like the prosecution going, let's take uh, this scary gang member and this gang shooting out to the suburbs where the, you know, the nice white people who don't see this sort of stuff will be shocked and appalled by a gangland murder. Bloods and crips, they're terrifyingly scary. Let's make sure this guy doesn't kill any more people and we'll put him in prison. Yeah. And imagine, imagine taking the case to a venue where, not that it's a bad thing, but to a venue where there are no gangs. Um, where there are very few African-Americans, where there are very few cases that involve crime, and there are very few cases that, that involve the community in situations where law enforcement you know, might be suspect or might be untruthful. They're, all these things are unknown to them. And then to put this, put this on them uh, to decide. And, but, but then we get to the question of, of the evidence, which makes the case sort of even more troubling. It's been proven time and time again that basing a conviction or even just a case purely on witness testimony, which is all this was, and it was just one witness, not to mention the one, the people that who got shot and said it wasn't him, you're going off this one guy who said he saw him drive past his house. It was late in the evening, and as Damien says, he's a dark-skinned guy. The car drives past the house, and this one guy who Damien has history with has said to the police, oh, I saw this Damien Skinner guy drive past. Didn't didn't see him commit the, the shooting, just saw him drive past moments before the shooting. That is the evidence. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in our system, it's it, we've come to a, a firm recognition that eyewitness testimony is very unreliable. You know, people always still think, even today, that, wow, if there's a so-called eyewitness who actually observes the shooter or the person committing the crime, that that must be highly reliable but you know, evidence and psychological analysis and data has shown that eyewitness testimony is inherently extremely unreliable for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, chiefly the person's in an, an excited state; they don't have much of an opportunity to observe them. Uh, they can be then refreshed after the crime by all sorts of facts and details and pictures and stuff that would, you know make the identification after the fact very unreliable. Um, so we didn't even really have, in this case, we didn't have an eyewitness who was credible because as you said, the guy didn't observe the crime, but we did have an eyewitness who observed the shooting and said it wasn't him. The lady, Danielle, the lady that's involved in the crime, her husband, her fiance is the one who got, got murdered. And she told him she would never forget the person who did it. And when my lawyer asked her, did she see me? She said, no. My lawyer just knew at that moment that I was going to get found not guilty. However, 
I'm in prison. So it's incredible that when someone, you know, someone who's shot, uh, especially in this situation, without anything else, there, there's no motive to testify falsely. You know, once in a while, you'll have a case where the victim is scared or afraid to tell the truth because they fear repercussions from a gang or mm. from the shooter. But we didn't even have that. We had we had a victim who had no reason to lie and uh, purportedly no fear of retribution or anything like that, who said, this isn't the guy that shot me. And yet, you know, the government put that witness on just like the other person who saw a car and tried to argue that that was sufficient. So it was kind of a joke, Jack, let's face it. Absolutely a joke. But yeah, as you said, especially if the, the woman who was shot turns around and says, that's not the guy. But then the other, his co-defendant in this case, Gregory Smith, she said she recognised that guy. Yeah, I recognise him from the shooting, but that other guy, I, I don't recognise him. And even Gregory Smith, the, the co-defendant, said, well, I don't know this guy. And then you look at the people that got up on the stand with him, I think he said it was close to 15 people, you know, um, not that this should matter, but I suppose it does. You know, churchgoers, you know, people from a congregation of a, of a church, from his dad's church who said he was with us at this barbecue, we were watching this game, the basketball, and that's where he was. But apparently that, again, didn't make a difference. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, not only to have a lack of eyewitness or witness testimony at the scene or near the scene, but then to have a very well corroborated alibi where multiple people said, no, he was here. At that specific time. And, you know, the inability to connect the two defendants makes the case even weaker. Your supposed co-defendant in this case, did he ever say anything about you? No, actually, actually, he told him he didn't even know me. He told him he didn't know me. He's not even from the same neighborhood I live in. He's from across town. You know, so there's no, as far as we know, there's no factual connection to these two co-defendants who allegedly got together to commit this crime together, which makes no sense if you can't link them in any way. And what what's sad about this, Jack, is that, you know, when it was committed, we really didn't have the forensic abilities that we have now. And I mean, cell tower data. So if this case were committed anywhere in probably the last 10 years, uh, it's inevitable that the defendants, unless they were very clever, would have had cell phones, would have had them on them. We would have been able to tell from the cell tower data what area they were in. And assuming that uh, Damien's telling the truth, which I believe he is, uh, we would have seen that his his phone would have been pinging uh, during those hours in a cell tower nearby the party or gathering he was at. It wouldn't have been pinging against the tower near where the crime occurred. Uh, and we would have been able to tell, not with exact specificity, but with some some particularity, what area he was in, and it wouldn't have been the area where the crime occurred. So it's sad that we don't have the forensics weren't the same that they were back then. And those are those are key facts because that alone could have blown the case out of the water. And also, there's this factor of that he talks about that his brother obviously was a gang member and was involved in doing bits and pieces that were against the law, even suggestions of uh, of other shootings and killings. You know, and, and for him to, to say that, you know, when he was first brought in, the police said, look, we know you didn't do this. Your brother's a bad guy, though. You know he's a bad guy. We believe he's actually linked to all these other shootings. We don't have any evidence of him on this shooting, but we, we, we're pretty sure he committed this and this. We'll do you a deal. You testify against him, and this will go away. I mean, that's unethical beyond belief. That's just absolutely insane. And then the fact that when he didn't cave to the pressure 
they would still continue to pursue the case with really no credible evidence at all, except the guy saying, I saw him in a car. And, you know, even that is incredibly suspect. He, that guy has a motive against the defendant. And clearly the ability to see Damien in a car cruising by uh, and give an identification is incredibly suspect, especially when it's coupled with the motive that that guy had to testify against Damien. So none of it adds up. And so it's just a sad one to listen to. I found myself as I was listening to it, angered, right? Uh, angered at just the, the the failure here in so many different ways. Is this just old school 90s policing and prosecutors that just were like gung-ho and just cracking down on crime and getting results and showing that they were, you know, doing their jobs? Well, they were trying to. I mean, I don't know. They, they may have been trying to do their jobs. But yeah, back in the day and certainly even now, what happens a lot is there's a shooting. You know, they go out and interview people. Time may pass, whatever. They might be talking to a defendant on a completely unrelated case. You might question him about, hey, do you know anything about this shooting? And names pop up, right? And this happens all the time where names are given, sometimes intentionally to try to benefit the person given the name and thinking, gee, this is going to help me. I'll point the finger at this guy and I'll get time off my sentence or the charges that are pending against me will be dropped. Uh, other times it's just hearsay. You know, they're talking to a defendant or, or a suspect in another case and they say to the detectives or cops or agents, you know, look, I heard, you know, this guy might've been involved. And that could be as simple as that. It could be nothing more than, I heard he might be involved or he did it, which is nothing, right? And then they go and try to build a case against this other person with that nothing. And in this case, all they could do was get someone to say, oh, yeah, I did see him in the car, right? Which has no corroboration and doesn't really even make sense. But, yeah, that's oftentimes how investigations start, um, which well, one thing that we can take away is that they don't often end in this manner, right? They don't, they're not often this flimsily supported. And then the prosecutor goes in, proceeds with the case and takes a trial. That doesn't always happen and certainly doesn't happen most of the time. So we can find a little bit of comfort in that, but not in this case. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, the only good part about this, I suppose, if there is good in this, that uh, hopefully Damien will be out on parole um, in a month or so. He's been, you know, initially granted parole. It's his third attempt at parole because the last two times um, he said, well, I'm not admitting to, to anything because, you know, to get parole, you have to show remorse and that you've changed and all the rest of it, which he said, I, I just was never going to do. And the third time around, he said it again, but this time he was um, represented by a lady from uh, Project for the Innocent. They represented him at, at his... Um, at his hearing for that, so um, he was granted his his parole. So it's just got to go through the governor, um, make sure the governor doesn't put a cross on it, uh, and then hopefully he should be out of out of there. And he said once he's out, he'll continue to fight to to clear his name. What what a sad reflection, though, like that that the good light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I know. After, do, after doing a couple decades of time, that you get to be released on parole, and you know the odds the odds of him being able to prove his innocence. Are, are slim, mm. but of course, in every state, most states have a, 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 a program which you can go through to try to get a certificate of innocence. But that rarely, if ever happens when you're convicted and your case has never been reversed by any court. So to get a certificate of innocence is virtually impossible mm. in this situation. Plus the idea that, you know, they're going to sort of be able to solve the crime is probably extraordinarily far-fetched. 
and I know you've been trying to reach out to the co-defendant, mm. uh, but I, I would not, I can't really conceive of any reason why he would want to be truthful with you or to tell you that Damien had nothing to do with this case. Certainly really, even though, you know, he may have done his time, um, it's probably still not his interest to do that. Yeah. And so it'd be, it'd be amazing if he did. Uh, and actually told you the real story, but why would he? You exactly. Know, what, what's it's not, as of no benefit to him whatsoever, as you say. Uh, but speaking yeah. of, just briefly before we wrap up, obviously speaking of people who are innocent and who have managed to prove themselves innocent, I don't think we've spoken since Evaristo Salas Jr. Um, was uh, exonerated uh, finally after 27 years. He had an evidentiary hearing where, uh, you know, the past people were brought back to answer some tricky questions. And, um, yeah, eventually the detective in, in the situation had a bit of a slip up and admitted uh, to pay the informant where he'd been, you know, saying the whole way through that he'd never did that. No, 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 didn't do it, didn't do it. And eventually cracked and said, all right, I gave him 20 bucks. And uh, and it was all over Red Rover and he was released the next day. That is absolutely amazing. I, I was, I wanted to yell as I was driving my car and I heard about that one. One thing I want to, and a lot of people ask me about this, what about the detective? What happens to that man who's purged himself um, he's committed perjury. He's admitted to lying on the stand for the last, you know, he's lied for 27 years about that. What happens to him? Like nothing. He just get, walks off into the sunset and says, ah, well, never mind. Well, it depends upon the, the employer and the jurisdiction. I mean, he should be prosecuted. He should be prosecuted for perjury. I mean, in our country, prosecutions for perjury are extraordinarily rare. You know, so people always say to me, hey, you know, especially when they win their case, you know, don't we have something we could pursue on perjury against this person or that person? I'm like, that's a prosecutorial decision, which sadly is almost never done, especially against members of law enforcement. But what a great statement that would be uh, to the public and to everybody if the prosecutors, prosecutors tried to pursue this guy for his perjury, because obviously he's now admitted it. So that would be something that would be a fantastic result to arise out of this. But um, like I said, I don't think we have a lot of hope that that will actually happen. But a prosecution for perjury would really be the only thing that would bring some sense of justice to this. It would be much too late and much too little. Uh, but yeah, that would be that would be a great result and great remedy. Of course, he also would have, you know, a claim uh, possibly against the jurisdiction, a civil lawsuit, because mm-hmm. this is this is a completely newly discovered evidence. So I don't think there'd be a statute of limitations. So he could bring a civil suit to recover monetary damages, too not only against the individual, but perhaps against uh, that that law enforcement body. So I guess we'll see. But um, what a fantastic result. Mm-hmm. And kudos to you for shining a huge light on that and having a part in that. I mean, it frustrates me that nothing will happen to, you know, the people that did did wrong. Because if there's no repercussions, then it doesn't it doesn't deter anyone else from potentially going, oh, you know, because as I've said in the past, I have no doubt that detective probably said, well, if he didn't do this, he would have done something else. So I did the world a favor sort of thing. So that would be his mentality. I have no doubt. Um, he probably doesn't think he's done anything wrong whatsoever. And the fact that he won't be prosecuted for, for doing so, it, you know, just draws a line under it and says, well, you know, that it is what it is. Yeah. And the crazy sad thing about that is, you know, what what happens is in a situation like this, you know, the fact that he's admitted to perjuring himself in this case and to covering it up for all these years, um, that calls into question every other case he's been involved in. A heck of a lot of cases in which he's testified. So what I do hope that also happens is that it may reopen some cases uh, by defense lawyers or, or by the prosecution unit itself to revisit those cases to see whether sentences should be revisited or vacated. But 
the flip side of all that, you know, we say, gee, why won't, why won't they fire him? Why won't they charge him with perjury? If you think about the motivations of that prosecutorial entity, um, it's, it's certainly not in their interest to have maybe dozens to hundreds of cases revisited. Yeah. And sadly, that may be a motivation not to pursue this. Mm. So I think we you really need to try to continue to shine a light on this to try to see if we can get people to reopen cases in which this individual testified in the past. Yes, we will definitely be uh, delving into that, that's for sure. Well, as always, Mr. Letter, thank you very much indeed for your time. Our next case, we'll be discussing the controversial felony murder charge, which um, I've been reading a, a, a fair bit about, which has blown my mind. The uh, The United States of America still the, is the only country left with the felony murder rule, I believe. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's subject of so much debate over the years because mm-hmm. you get these people like what we'll talk about next episode who are uh, punished beyond belief for things in which they barely took part in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So we'll talk about that. But uh, good to see you, Jack. I will keep meeting and greeting Australians <laughs> in the United and States. And telling them about my show. <laughs> and spreading the word. I'm going to do it just person by person. Forget the Australians, <laughs> mate. Just tell the Americans. Oh, I want the Yanks on board. I'm getting the word out to the Yanks. You know, I mm. put it on LinkedIn and all those things. And But uh, I'm just going to work, you know, one person at a time, one Aussie at a time who visits America. That's how I'm going to do it. And also, just so you know, I've, I'm getting the holy water out because I've got a couple of prosecutors coming on the show. So <laughs> I'll, wow. be, I'll be ready to sprinkle the screen. So <laughs> are they are they given like the counterpoint or how, well, how's the, that going to go? There's a, there's a show in the United States called The Prosecutors. Um, it's two, two, two prosecutors who... Who, uh, who do a show. So uh, I got in touch with them and said, hey, look, I'm on the other side of the bench here. And uh, uh, so it'd be interesting to sit down and have a chat with you guys and, um, you know, hear from you because you guys get a pretty bad rap on the old one minute remaining. So, you know, right of reply. I'm all about the uh, the right of reply. I think that's great. Then we should have a point-counterpoint defense lawyer and prosecutor and just go at it. Absolutely. I'll, I'll buy the popcorn and sit back and enjoy the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. Land. All right, buddy. Well, good talking to you. You Take too, care. buddy. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Good rest of the week. See you, Thanks, Jack. Bye. You have one minute remaining. As always, a huge thank you to Michael for his valuable time and giving us feedback uh, on his opinion with these cases. And, of course, we will catch up with him after our next case on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted, and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.